Hi there, I'm Kate Meisner. Welcome back to the TrustCast, an Edelman podcast. A topic that's top of mind for all of us, the coronavirus vaccines. It's a topic that's not only top of mind, but has laid bare the legacy of systemic racism, putting Black and Latinx communities at the forefront of conversations around health equity. To discuss trust in the vaccine and how it plays out across populations, Edelman's Jacqueline Stewart, our U.S. Head of Multicultural Communications, joined Dr. Uche Blackstock, the founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity. Give it a listen. Hello, everyone. I'm Jacqueline Stewart, head of Edelman U.S. Multicultural Practice, and you're listening to The TrustCast, an Edelman podcast. Everyone's talking about it. Many people want it. Some people don't trust it. We're here to talk about vaccines today. The pandemic we know has laid bare historic disparities that forced institutions to confront a legacy of systemic racism. Most recently, vaccine hesitancy has dominated headlines, again, putting Black and Latinx communities at the center of the conversation on trust, equity, and health. To discuss this, we brought in Dr. Uche Blackstock, founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity, a mission-driven organization that partners with healthcare and related organizations to confront racism in healthcare and to eradicate racial health inequities. Dr. Blackstock is the expert in all things healthcare and racial equity. She previously worked at the NYU School of Medicine, has been recognized by Forbes for her DNI efforts. She's written for the Boston Globe, Washington Post, Scientific American, and others and received both her undergraduate and medical degrees from Harvard University. I mean, we can go on and on. Um, We are so thrilled to have you here to talk about um, such an important topic. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jacqueline. Great, so let's just jump right in. Um, It's been clear that communities of color have been disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus. And there has been a lesser outcome in participation with clinical studies and vaccine trials. Um, Let's talk about why that may be the case. Why do you think that there is lower participation? Uh, In in clinical trials, uh, specifically? You know, it's interesting because a lot of the the data that actually is out there um, has shown that when Black and Latinx communities are really informed about clinical trials, told what it entails, told who it will benefit the person and their community, that they are actually more likely... Um, than white Americans to sign up for clinical trials. So if we're seeing that, you know, in the clinical trials, for example, for COVID, that there may have not been enough representation or diverse representation, that we know that is an issue of outreach. That is an issue of being able to engage with community members, usually through trusted messengers, uh, to explain to people, you know, how, how and why they should be involved in these trials. And it's also about ensuring that clinical trials are done in a way that um, makes these participation accessible so that, for example, people can come after work or that there is some other incentive for them to participate, right? Whether it is, you know, giving, um, you know, a small honorarium for their participation or um, something else that will help benefit them. But we have to think about really creative and innovative ways of getting people involved in these clinical trials while using an equity lens. I love that. Putting the onus on these organizations, these institutions, the healthcare industry to do the work that's necessary to engage communities, right? Absolutely. And what's interesting is that, you know, even Moderna, they actually paused their clinical trial 
uh, last year when they realized that they didn't have enough diverse representation among their clinical trial participants because they, they realized, uh, because even looking at who was being most impacted by COVID, that they did not have enough diversity. So they paused the trial and they did outreach to ensure that uh, you know, they, they had Black and Latinx uh, representation. I thought that was very important. And I think that often there is this question of this trade-off between uh, equity and speed. But I think that um, the two are not mutually exclusive. We have to prioritize both. That's right. And and that's responsibility, right? That's the responsibility right. of the company, of Moderna, of, of other folks who are influential in this space um, to do things in an ethical way uh, so that we're capturing all the data that we need, all the information. Absolutely. Um, so you brought up the disproportionate impact of COVID on, you know, Black and Latinx communities. Can you talk a little bit more about why this may be the case? What are the correlating factors here that we also have to consider? Right. And so, so sometimes um, the answer to that question, I say the answer is systemic racism, but essentially, um, systemic racism has left Black and Latinx communities vulnerable. And that was even before the pandemic, you know, as a result of, of policies that have led to residential segregation, that has actually been a key driver in, um, in creating disparate health outcomes. And so we saw that these communities were more likely to carry a higher burden or be burdened with chronic diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, and obesity, which actually put them at risk for doing poorly if they were infected with coronavirus. And then looking at the type of jobs that these community members have, they're more likely to be public facings as essential workers and service workers. We're more likely to live in overcrowded housing. Again, another risk factor for coronavirus uh, transmission. We're more likely to live in communities where the healthcare institutions are under-resourced. We're more likely to be under uninsured. And so I would say those factors are not even additive. Um, I think, um, you know, they basically, when you put them all together, they create a, a situation almost like the perfect storm uh, where our communities were almost um, set, almost set up to be really disproportionately impacted in this pandemic. And I even noticed um, about the second week that um, uh, we had shut down here in New York City and I was still seeing patients, I noticed that even my patient population had shifted like literally right in front of my eyes from very racially diverse to mostly black and brown people. And I remember saying to our, to our staff, who are also mostly black and brown, I said, do you notice that, uh, you know, the demographics have shifted? And at that point, none of the data had come out yet. But I think that, you know, I had been thinking about these issues, especially since seeing that in China, the people who had done poorly were people with chronic diseases and thinking about who in the United States, which communities carry the highest burden. And that I was seeing it in front of my own eyes. And I decided just to start writing about it and um, raising the alarm that we were going to see absolute devastation of you know, Black, Latinx, Indigenous communities during this pandemic. Yeah, and that's why it's important uh, for for folks to break it down and, and listen to the way that you've outlined it here, right? Pay attention to the systems. The systems are broken, not the people. Um, folks love to talk about uh, the disproportionate impact as, as if, you know, it really belongs to us. There is something fundamentally wrong with Black, Latinx and, and other disproportionately impacted communities. Yeah, it's like there's something biologically wrong. And it's interesting because even 
um, in my own medical education, uh, often race is listed as a risk factor for certain diseases, diabetes, high blood pressure, all these chronic diseases. And really it's, it's not race, it's, it's racism. It's the environment of disadvantage that is created by systemic racism. And we, and we saw that play out last year and still playing out now. That's key here. It is not race. It is racism. What do you think needed to be done in order to stem the spread of of the virus uh, in our communities? Well, I mean, I I think that, you know, there's some short and long term strategies. But I also I think that what last year called attention to is that there are these fundamental issues around jobs, around housing, around education, and the policy needed to create equitable environments for our communities, for people to be able to find uh, gainful employment with, with paid sick leave and benefits, for people to be able to find affordable housing, safe and affordable housing so that they can actually accumulate wealth. So there, so there, we call those the social determinants of health. So they're the factors that influence the health of people and communities. And I think that um, in order to have avoided what we saw last year and what we continue to see, we need to think about legislative policies that essentially put resources back into these communities that have been de- disinvested in for decades, if not centuries. Perfect. I think that that is extremely important. What do you say to folks who view those uh, legislative policies, who view those efforts as a handout uh, to, to communities of color? Yeah, it's no, it's it's not a handout. I mean, it, it, it's it's just it's overwhelming um, the, the legacy of systemic racism in this country and how it has has harmed um, specifically also black communities. I, I mean, the um, the the resources that have been taken out of communities through policies like you know the, like redlining, where where um, black families could not purchase property because they lived in neighborhoods that were redlined. But if you lived in a neighborhood that wasn't redlined, you'd be able to qualify for a federally backed mortgage, mm-hmm. right? And thinking about how that compounds over time, because in this country, home ownership is one of the ways that you accumulate wealth and people pass that down from generation to generation. So that is thinking about homes, the values of homes appreciating, people using that money to send their children to college and thinking about who is not able to afford college because of that thinking about all of the lost opportunities. So when people say that these sort of legislative policies are a handout, I can't think of anything being more inaccurate and just plain wrong. And speaking of inaccuracies, when folks are talking about vaccine hesitancy uh, and and really putting the onus again on on Black and Latinx communities, you know, it really affects how the vaccine has even been rolled out. Uh, because there is this prevailing narrative around our communities not wanting to take it. And we've seen that the data proves that that's just not true. Right, right. And, and I actually like to use this idea of, like, of institutional trustworthiness mm-hmm. that, you know, we like. I like to move away from vaccine hesitancy because I like to say that, you know, thinking about the, you know, the history, not just the history, but current day, how healthcare institutions, not just, even just healthcare institutions, all different types of social institutions have proved untrustworthy to to our communities and of course people will have um have mistrust and distrust towards these institutions and so i think 
institutions need to think about what, what do we need to do to center these communities? What do we need to do to engender trust? And what that looks like is engaging with these communities, centering them, finding out what their concerns and priorities are, having them take the lead and putting resources into the communities. So like with the vaccines, for example, we've seen that when community partners and community-based organizations lead the vaccination outreach and distribution efforts that we have more success. And I don't think that is a surprise at all. And also when we put vaccine distribution sites in the neighborhoods, we also have more success. So it's to me, it's not really rocket science to me. It's, it's all about um, putting the investment in and also being intentional about those efforts. Exactly. And I think, you know, that's exactly how we've been uh, counseling our clients. Uh, and it's not rocket science, but to folks who uh, are used to the system always working that way, the world always working for them right. and geared to right. them, it, it, it almost seems counterintuitive to put that extra effort uh, to make sure that, that access is equitable. Yes, it really does. And I was just, um, I was reading that the Kaiser Family Foundation, they've done said so much amazing work around tracking the data around vaccine distribution and who's been vaccinated. Um, but they were looking at what some of the states are doing well in terms of vaccine distribution. And some states are actually using health equity metrics, these metrics that look at the health status of different communities, um, how many people have died from COVID in those communities, how many people work in public facing jobs and are vulnerable. And they use those metrics to direct their resources, right? As opposed to just saying, okay, we're just gonna give the vaccine to everybody, but we have to really use an equity lens and think about, we have to really give it first and prioritize the communities that have been hardest hit. Or for example, we have to make sure we set aside a certain percentage of vaccines for those communities so that people from other places can't come in and take those vaccines. Or we need to make the registration process easier, right? We know that people who have uh, technology like smartphones and laptops that know how to use those can more easily make appointments, but we need to be able to have people be able to pick up the phone and call or have someone make an appointment for them. So again, like, again, not rocket science, but it's about being intentional about putting equity front and center in, in the vaccine rollout or any sort of um, initiative like this one. And we know that you've been focused on making it easier by leveraging your platform to spread the truth about the vaccine uh, and disseminate important information. I want to talk about, you know, an example that, that we discussed right before hopping on this podcast today um, and how you made it easier for a young woman to actually get the vaccine. Right. So, right. So there, you know, there was a, there was a woman that I used to work with, um, several years ago, but we've stayed in touch on social media. And I often post about, you know, about the pandemic and racial health inequities and the vaccine on my social media. And so she'd responded to one of my Facebook stories and said, you know, that vaccine, I'm worried about it. It's not safe. Uh, I don't want to take it. And so I replied to her and said, I understand your concerns, but I'm happy to answer your questions. And this was in November. And since then we have, we stayed in touch. I've, I've answered her questions. I've, I've addressed her doubts. Um, I've uh, pointed her towards some resources that she can read to help answer some of her remaining questions. And today she actually, um, she and her husband went for their vaccine appointment and she, texted me and said, you know, thank you so much for the encouragement. I'm so glad that we went. But what that whole experience showed me was that one, we need to have patience, especially when when asking 
<laughs> when asking basic Black Americans to make a decision that, um, you know, to, to take the, to take a vaccine, right, based on a vaccine that appears to have been created very quickly, right, and 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 social institutions that have not treated our communities well. But also, I see myself as a trusted messenger, and um, I know that she trusted me, and and I don't take that lightly at all. Right. I actually am honored and and and, and humbled by that. And I've tried to use that not just with people I'm close to, but also, you know, because I have a platform on media to talk about these issues. And I remember even um, a nurse contacted me and said that there was, she was in a patient's room and he said, I'm going to take the vaccine now because that doctor on TV, I trust her. And, and she says that it's safe and effective. And it was an older black man, you know, so I know that for him seeing, seeing me on TV talk about this vaccine, you know, it, it made a difference for him. Right, because people are in relationship with you based on trust. Right. Um, whether that relationship is watching you on TV or sending you a DM on Twitter or on Instagram, that is always to exercise trust. Exactly. Um, and, you know, that's one of the roles of business, right, is to rebuild trust um, and really engender trust. And business is going to have to play such a large role in doing so. We know that from our 2021 Trust Barometer Report, right. uh, especially when it comes to speaking to communities about misinformation, um, particularly about the vaccine, but also beyond that. What's your advice to executives, CEOs, and businesses about their role in, in really advancing communities, uh, uh, more specifically the Black community? Well, you know, I, I think that there's work that businesses can do both internally and externally because, you know, I think that there, there could be employees that are also having doubts about the vaccine. So I think that it's incumbent about among business leaders to take a kind of a leadership role in terms of COVID education, outreach, pointing their employees to the resources that they need. And then in terms of specifically um, the Black community, I think it's about engaging with community-based organizations in those areas, seeing what their needs are. I think also there is a way for them to try to help small businesses. We know that small businesses owned by Black Americans have been disproportionately impacted in this pandemic. And so how, how can larger companies help those smaller businesses um, stay on their feet uh, for, for a longer amount of time? And then also just, uh, I would say, focus on um, advocacy groups around food, housing, um, and jobs, and consider having, you know, virtual fundraisers or volunteer events where you can help to contribute to these sorts of organizations. That's right. It's really a holistic approach. It's not just, you know, one and done getting in there to get the result that you want. It's really about being engaged. Exactly. How do you what how do you see the government playing a larger role in helping to build trust uh, or even members of the media? How do they go about uh, reassuring members of the black community at this time? Yeah, I, I think media wise, it's really telling the stories. I think that, um, you know, we know what the data shows. We know that the data has shows that our communities have been disproportionately impacted. But what are, what are the faces behind that? That the people, the families impacted. What does that mean for the communities? What does that mean for um, the future of the communities? And so I think the media has a responsibility to help tell our stories in a way that is accurate and that uses um, our voices. And I think um, the government, and I will say that I'm very encouraged by what I've seen over, you know, since since, since November in terms of um, having an equity fo focus, but 
putting resources towards health literacy, putting resources towards establishing vaccination sites in the hardest hit communities, um, putting resources towards testing um, in schools, uh, COVID testing schools in underserved areas so that they can stay open. Um, so again, just like being really intentional about where we are putting our resources, because because even though it, it seems like common sense, it, it hasn't been done previously. And I think a lot of the concern people have is what, you know, they, and, I, and I've had patients tell me this, we were dying all last year, so why now does someone want me to take a vaccine? And well, actually what I say to that is, <laughs> you you have to know that there are many of us behind the scenes, like myself, other Black healthcare and public health professionals who are really advocating for our communities to receive this vaccine. Yeah. Like we, we, cause we, 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 we understand, um, the devastation it's caused. And because we have this experience of living in both worlds, we, we know the importance of this vaccine to getting out of this very, very challenging and unfortunate situation. And we can, we can also hold space for the fact that yes, we still need to address racism, systemic racism. But yes, these vaccines still are safe and effective. And we encourage you to take these vaccines and we're going to do all that we can to make sure we get a vaccination into your arm. And beyond the vaccine, what does the healthcare industry need to do? What do healthcare organizations need to do in order to address systemic racism? So I think that, you know, I think in the past that a lot of healthcare organizations and people in healthcare have just thought about like, uh, the, the health of communities is just related to access to healthcare or the quality of care that they receive. But as we've been talking about, it's really a more holistic approach. It's thinking about how how can, as a healthcare institution, we make sure that the people who are seeking care here, one, have broadband access so that they can actually um, make their telehealth appointments when they can't come in in person. What about if our patients are having... Um, are undocumented and, and need uh, legal help, right? Making sure that we can connect them with those services. What about our, pa- our, our patients with housing insecurity? Mm-hmm. How can we help to get them um, adequate housing? And, and, and think and, and also appreciating that all of those issues are with are, are and should be within the realm of what healthcare institutions should be concerned about. It's recognizing that um, there are upstream factors like systemic racism that impact the health of their patients. And it's not just about, oh, but I provided this person with great care because there's so much that happens outside of that clinic room or that hospital room that impacts that patient's health. I also want to talk a little bit about diversity, equity, and inclusion within uh, the healthcare industry. We talked about how important it is for folks to engage trusted messengers. We talked about how you're a trusted messenger. It's When I look at the news and I see you, I know that whatever you say is going to be the truth and we're good to go. Uh, so what, how, what does the industry need to do in order to continue getting folks, you know, like you, like me, uh, you know, within their ranks? How can we not only increase diversity, but also elevate uh, voices within within the healthcare industry? Yeah, I think you know one issue is the pipeline issue, and 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 appreciating that the pipeline issue isn't an issue that starts in college or in high school. Like we need to be um, grooming, um, you know, children from when they're when they're, you know, in kindergarten, pre-kindergarten and exposing them to these opportunities and what that looks like. I think our public, private 
um, collaboratives where, or collaborations rather, where we go into the schools and we are mentoring students. We're bringing them out into the healthcare setting. We are, um, following them all through school and, and making sure that they have not only the exposure, but the resources. That's the other thing that we're providing even finan financial assistance because we know about the racial wealth gap. A, lo a lot of the issue is, you know, people having to take out you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans to go to professional school, right? We need to think about how can healthcare institutions help with that, right? How can they help support uh, students from pre-K onward? And then I think the other issue is how do we work on creating inclusive environments? Because, mm -hmm. you know, that's the other issue. How do we create environments where people can come to work as their full selves, and talk about the issues that are not only affecting them, but also their communities. And then how can we make sure that they are mentored and sponsored and have the same opportunities that everyone else does? Um, and, and I think what that looks like is being very intentional. It looks like uh, uh, putting resource in, resources in, but also having strategic plans that are integrating equity into them, right? When you think about recruitment, retention, promotion, making sure that we're using an equity lens with all of those processes. At every level, every step of the way. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I know that you're you're helping to inform that through your organization, the organization you founded, Advancing Health Equity. You know, it touches on so many important issues from systemic racism and unconscious bias in healthcare uh, to, of course, the pandemic and how it's impacted uh, Black communities. I want to hear a little bit more about why you started Advancing Health Equity. So I actually started it because of my own experiences being a Black physician um, in academic medicine. I think by all appearances on the outside, people would have said, oh, Uchi, but you're so successful. But I actually was, was dealing with these um, situations where I wasn't being mentored. Um, I was being passed up for opportunities. I, my promotion was being declined, denied rather. And, 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 and these weren't just experiences I was having. These are experiences that many um, black physicians and faculty were having as well. And it became very clear to me that this, these are institutional problems and not just to my institution, but throughout academic medicine and also in healthcare in general, that we have these environments that, you know, the goal is to, to deliver great patient care, quality patient care. But if the culture of the institution is not equitable, how is the care that we're delivering going to be equitable? And how are we going to be able to make sure that each and every patient gets the best care? And so I started advancing health equity two years ago with the goal of working with healthcare organizations ranging from medical schools, healthcare systems, healthcare startups, um, to making, to making sure that they were being intentional about addressing bias and racism in healthcare within the workplace, um, in the way that they cared for patients. And, um, it's been, it's been amazing. I mean, I think last year, everything that happened last year with the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, as well as the pandemic revealing these health inequities, um, has just re reaffirmed my decision to focus on this work. It is, it is crucially needed. And, um, I'm at an overcapacity right now because I think a lot of organizations have woken up, even though we've been talking about these issues for a very, very long time. But I must say, I'm encouraged that they want to do the work. I just hope that they realize that, that this is not a short-term project. This is, this is long-term and has to be integrated, at, at, as you said, at every level of the organization. 
this has to become who organizations are. This has to become part of their organizational identity. Absolutely. It's not an activity. Right. Um, so kudos to you and really applause and gratitude to you for using your experience to, to create this organization and really um, open doors uh, for, for others in this space. So thank you so much for that work. Thank you. Um, I just want to talk a, a bit about your priority initiatives that you're working on right now. Um, what's at the top of your list? So actually this year, I'm doing a lot of work around obviously the vaccine and um, we're doing work with actually with healthcare professionals to make sure that they are ready to have conversations with their patients who have questions about the vaccine. We're helping them do and learn the skills of motivational interviewing and helping them to address um, concerns. So hopefully we can increase um, vaccine uptake specifically um, in Black and Latinx communities. What's motivational interviewing? I want to hear about that. Oh, a motivational interviewing is just sort of actually allowing the patient to take sort of take the lead and to really um, encourage them to make decisions for themselves and to advocate for themselves as opposed to um, it being one sided and you telling them as a provider what they should do. That's right. That's really powerful. I wish I uh, had that <laughs> in many of my interactions. Um, and so now I want to get a bit personal. Um, I'd love to, you know, talk about your mother, Dr. Dale Blackstock, uh, and really end on a note of advice for all those listening. You know, she's really the matriarch of your family's legacy in medicine. What is one piece of advice your mother gave you that you still carry with you today? Wow. You know, my, my mother gave me so much advice. And then also there's so much I learned just by by watching her, um, you know, watching her at home and at work, caring for her patients. But actually the one thing that she told me that always stays with me most of all is that I should always just make sure I'm taking care of myself. That, you know, especially having a demanding career, I have two small children and um, she was in a very similar position years ago and just said, make sure you take the time out um, for yourself to rest and restore because this work that you're doing, you want to be doing this for the long run. And so, you know, and we need you in this. And so I always try to make time for, um, for self-care or some downtime or I'm at least very mindful of the need to do so. That's right. Rest is part of the work. And I think sometimes we forget that. That's our responsibility. Yes. To take care of ourselves. Absolutely. So thank you for that note. Thank you, Dr. Blackstock, for coming on the show and sharing all of your expertise and knowledge. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to The Trustcast, an Edelman podcast. Thanks for listening to The Trustcast. The Trustcast is produced by Tara Zafar and Shireen Pathak. Don't forget to follow Edelman PR on Twitter and visit us on edelman.com. Thanks so much and have a great day.